So today we're reading from 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verses 1 to 25, and um, it's on page 330 in the Pew Bibles, and if you've got one of the other ones, I don't know what number that is. What is it? 467 in the one that doesn't look like that. <laughs> okay. Um, 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verses 1 to 25. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced sorcery, divination and witchcraft, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking them, him to anger. He took the carved image he had made and put it in God's temple, of which God had said to David and to his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites leave the land I assigned to your forefathers. If only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them concerning all the laws, decrees and ordinances given through Moses. But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray, so they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, and they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Afterwards, he rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David, west of the Gion Spring in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate and encircling the hill of Ophel. He also made it much higher. He stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities in Judah. He got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as all the altars he had built on, on the temple hill and in Jerusalem, and he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. The people, however, continued to sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. In the other events of uh, Manasseh's reign, including his prayer to his God and the words that the seers spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, are written in the annals of the kings of Israel. His prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty 
as well as all his sins and unfaithfulness, and the sites where he built high places and set up Asherah poles and idols before he humbled himself, all are written in the records of the seers. Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in his palace, and Ammon, his son, succeeded him as king. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. Ammon worshipped and offered sacrifices to all the idols Manasseh had made. But unlike his father Manasseh, he did not humble himself before the Lord. Ammon increased his guilt. Ammon's officials conspired against him and assassinated him in his palace. Then the people of the land killed all who had plotted against King Ammon, and they made Josiah, his son king, in his place. Okay, let's pray, shall we? Uh, Father, thank you so much that the author of Chronicles wrote this great book and that uh, you have, uh, he worked through, you worked uh, through him. Uh, It is your inspired word and we thank you that it's been preserved for us, that we would know more of uh, your dealings with your people, your character, and how we ought to respond to you. And so we pray that you would focus our minds, that you would soften our hearts, that we would uh, live lives that please you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, What are the limits to who can be forgiven? Uh, For those of you who don't know of Corrie ten Boom. Uh, Corrie ten Boom was a uh, young Dutch woman during the uh, Second World War period whose family were, became well known after the war because they uh, assisted uh, Jews. They hid Jews uh, from Nazis. And there's a good book and a movie called The Hiding Place uh, where you can learn all about that. Uh, Corrie ten Boom uh, ended up in a Nazi concentration camp at a place called Ravensbrück uh, with her sister Betsy. And I, we, we, we can't imagine what that would be like, can we? We can't imagine the, uh, the horror and the, uh, the, uh, the suffering, the conditions uh, to which they were subjected to uh, in that concentration camp. Uh, indeed, for many of us, when we think of evil, the word Nazi kind of easily connects with that, doesn't it? It's a, kind of like the epitome of, of evil. Uh, in 1947, with uh, very fresh memories of her experience in the concentration camp, uh, Corrie ten Boom was speaking in a church service, and after the church service, uh, having... I guess, uh, some coffee, tea, or shaking hands with people and whatever. Uh, She was approached by a man. He was balding. He was wearing a a grey overcoat. And she literally froze when she saw him. She recognised him as being one of the guards at Ravensbrook, uh, one who was notorious, uh, particularly for his degrading treatment of women in the camp. And now they were together 
in church. And from the conversation which followed, it seemed apparent that after the war he'd actually become a Christian and that he was now one of God's people. Now I think that there would be something wrong with us, with any of us who did not, who would not uh, uh, understand that this was a difficult moment for Corrie ten Boom. That's the moment where she froze. But the concept that a feared Nazi concentration camp guard should be forgiven by God, that really ought not to be a concept that comes as a surprise to us or even a shock because the Bible tells us of all kinds of people who have been forgiven by God, all kinds of people. Um, people in the Bible who obviously were not involved in evil, you know, as remotely as extensive as the Holocaust, but people who've done more evil than, than most are in the Bible forgiven by God. Our minds might turn, for example, to the Apostle Paul, who, as Saul, um, was uh, later described himself as being the chief of sinners. Uh, Saul, who uh, literally went after Christians. Saul, who, if he turned up in your church service here, you'd be pretty frightened because he arrested Christians, uh, Christians died because of him, they were imprisoned. And he could describe himself later as the chief of sinners. And if we were to think of an Old Testament kind of equivalent to uh, Saul slash Paul, I actually think it would be hard to go past Manasseh, uh, King Manasseh. Uh, the Manasseh who we're dealing with in today's passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. You know, his father was Hezekiah and we learned about Hezekiah last week. Hezekiah uh, stands as uh, one of the most godly of Judah's kings uh, and in as much as he stands as one of the most godly, um, his son Manasseh stands quite head and shoulders above others as being the most evil. Um, and our passage today, 2 Chronicles chapter 33 uh, paints a, a picture of what his evil was like. Uh, so if you have a look at that in your Bible, see in, I'm not going to read masses of it for you, but in verses 1 through to 5, uh, we're told that uh, he reversed the reforms that his father had made uh, and he sank more deeply into the mire of, of idolatry. Uh, he... He reinstated Baal worship. He re-erected Asherah poles to the, the goddess Asherah. We're told that he, that he worshipped the stars, a form of astrology, and, and also that he, he built pagan altars inside God's temple. How about that? Inside the temple of the Lord. You know, the very place which symbolised God's presence amongst his people, he's gone and actually built altars to pagan gods. And in verse 6, 
Uh, he even had carved himself out an image. We're told in another part of the Bible that it was an image of the goddess Asherah. And he installed that, that idol in the temple of the Lord. Now, I guess if that's all that he had done, you would think, okay, that's pretty much like some of the other kings had done. But he also became uh, engrossed in, he immersed himself in the occult. And so in verse 6, we learned that uh, this king of Judah uh, practiced divination, witchcraft, he sought omens, he consulted mediums and spiritists. In other words, he was actually, uh, he had immersed himself, he was engrossed in the evil powers of this world without shame. He was caught up in the evil powers of darkness. Now, the Bad, uh, false spirituality leads to bad practice. It leads to an unbridled ungodliness in terms of the way that you live your life. This is not the only passage of scripture that describes Manasseh for us. And there is another account of Manasseh in uh, 1 Kings chapter 21, which fills out the picture of, of his evil uh, even more because it tells us that because of Manasseh that the streets of Jerusalem were filled with blood, filled with the blood of innocent people. In one sense, if we look at our own passage today more carefully, we can see that the fact that he was a murderer uh, ought not to surprise us because... Uh, in verse 6, uh, what, what did he do to his own sons? You see that in verse 6? Now, to intentionally incinerate a person in order to kill them, to burn a person alive uh, in order to cause their death, uh, that is the most appalling of atrocities. Um, it still happens today. Um, I understand that in some of the conflicts in the Middle East, when uh, enemies have been captured, uh, this is what has been done to them. This is not something that you want to see. And Manasseh did it to his own sons as a form of worship. This was his worship. This is an evil man. He's evil. He's difficult to describe it is a wholesale rejection of God and it was so comprehensive that in verse 9 the assessment of the author of Chronicles is that Judah did more evil during his reign than any of the nations that the God that God had driven out of the land before them more evil than the Canaanites that lived in the land before Israel took possession. And, you know, in, um, uh, before they actually conquered the, uh, the uh, Promised Land, uh, when Moses was instructing God's people, 
about how to live in the land in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Uh, he warned them to have nothing to do with the occult because the inhabitants of the land were in, involved in the occult and it's given as one of the reasons why God was driving them out of the land. Uh, and so this is the warning. And in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 20, uh, God made it clear that um, if they turned away from him, that he would uproot them from the land. So that their possession, their tenancy, if you like, of the promised land was not guaranteed. If they didn't obey their part of the covenant, they would be uprooted. They would be exiled from the land. So, what is their spiritual state now? How would you describe it? I mean, divination, witchcraft, mediums, a pagan idol, centrepiece in the Lord's temple. It's, they're on the edge, aren't they? <laughs> They're literally on the edge of exile. In fact, um, exile uh, is just around the corner. Uh, we're not told this in the 2 Chronicles uh, 33 passage, but in the, the other passage in 2 Kings chapter 21, uh, we learn that their evil had become so great at this point that God's patience was... God was out of patience that they had crossed the bridge of no return and that exile was going to happen. Um, the two kings passage describes, God says that they're like a dish and I, you know, he said, I'm going to wash that dish clean. I'm going to flip it over. I'm going to wash it on the other side. <laughs> um, uh, that, that is what he was going to do to them. So exile would happen. Uh, it's now just a question of timing. That is when it's going to happen. Now, here in um, verses 10 and 11, uh, because of his evil, um, Manasseh himself is, in a sense, exiled. Uh, let me read to you verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they, had no, they paid no attention. Now, this is a time when there was a lot of prophecy going on. For example, Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesying around this time. Uh, there's a lot of prophetic activity. And verse 11, So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. Now, the bigger um, picture geopolitically was, as we saw last week, that Assyria was the dominant uh, power in the region at the time. And we know from records outside of the Bible, that is, we know from the, the records of the Assyrian kings at the time, that they were in relationship with Manasseh, uh, that it... Uh, was a relationship whereby they were the superpower of the region and that they were forcing Manasseh to supply raw materials for their 
construction industry and the military industry. And so Manasseh didn't want to do that. He was an unwilling participant, but uh, they had the power. And so we don't know this for sure. It's only speculation, but that may possibly explain the, the, the backstory uh, as to why Manasseh um, was now captive by them. That is that Manasseh may very well have rebelled against Assyria and Assyria has therefore taken action against Manasseh. There are other possible explanations politically as well. But they captured him, they bound him, they shackled him, they put a ring in his nose. Uh, another uh, tr translation of that could be a hook in his nose. So it's... And they, and they then took him out of the Promised Land and they, uh, they took him to Babylon, which Assyria controlled at that point in time. So think of that image. I mean, what, what kind of uh, picture does that arouse for you in your minds? It's a, it's a picture of humiliation, isn't it? It's, it's really... It's, and it's, it's... You know, here he was... He's been the king of, of Judah and now he's shackled and he's bound and he's got this ring in his nose. Uh, it's, it's humiliation and it's propaganda as well because word would get around. Uh, you want to rebel against the king of Assyria? Then this could be you. Take a look at Manasseh. But Manasseh's deeper problem was not that he rebelled against Assyria. Manasseh's real problem was that he rebelled against God. That's the problem. And, and although God is incredibly patient with, with each one of us, uh, the reality is that God does not allow anyone to continue to rebel against him forever. Make no mistake about that. Uh, God is not neutral about sin. God does not just brush sin under the carpet. Uh, sin does incur God's judgment. Now, I imagine that if uh, you or I were to visit the remains of a you know, concentration camp, that we would, we would feel some of the evil that had taken place there. In, in psychologically, we would, we, we, would, we would feel that. And we need to feel the gravity of Manasseh's evil, uh, the, the human blood which flooded the streets of Jerusalem, uh, which was rooted in his utter rejection of God, epitomised by a, a pagan idol in desecrating the temple of God. So the question I want to ask is, well, what did Manasseh deserve? I think it's hard to imagine anyone having any trouble with the idea that he deserved to be judged, that he deserved punishment of some form. Now, one of the most quoted verses in, in either one or two Chronicles is, uh, uh, the, the, is 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. And it's a, 
it's a very well-known verse because we, we often quote it when we're in times of drought and we want to pray to God or we're reminded of the importance of praying to God. I've printed it for you on your sheets. Did you notice that? Um, this is worth reading out. In fact, why don't we read it together? Um, do you think we could do that? Some of you I know will know it off by heart. Grab your sheets. We're going to read 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14 out aloud together. Everyone got that? Ready to go? Okay. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. That's, that's worth memorising, isn't it? That's a, that's a great verse. And God spoke these words. And God spoke these words uh, to Solomon in answer to a prayer that Solomon had made to God uh, just after he had dedicated the temple. So this is God's response to a request from Solomon. And in that prayer, when Solomon spoke to God, in essence what Solomon asked God was this. Uh, he said, when your people sin, as we all sin, now they're not my words, they're Solomon's words, as we all sin, so when your people sin and you take them out of this land as captives and if they humble themselves and they repent and they, they turn towards this city, they turn towards this temple in prayer, then forgive them their sin, heal them and restore them. And that was Solomon's request to God. And we've just read together God's answer to that, a promise. Now, Manasseh ranks as the most evil king of Judah ever. That's his status. And yet the focus of 2 Chronicles chapter 33 is not that Manasseh gets what he deserves. The focus of 2 Chronicles 33 is that Manasseh gets what he does not deserve. Forgiveness. Verse 12. In his distress, he sought the favour of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. How about that? Now, um, that is actually, you see what's, what's happened here? One of the I think probably the key word there is the word humbled. Um, God had stripped Manasseh of anything which could have been a cause for pride for him. His wealth, his kingdom, his status, 
However, in exile, there is a variety of ways in which he could have responded to that. Bitterness would be one way. Could have been bitter with God. Self-pity could have been another response. Um, blame shifting. What am I doing here? It's not my fault. Someone else's fault. He could have responded in those ways, couldn't he? But he looked in the mirror and he, and he didn't like what he saw. And he came to understand his state before God and was humbled. Now, this is actually quite different to his own son. Uh, when his uh, son Amon became king after Manasseh died, uh, in fact, we read a little bit about um, Amon in verses 21 through to 25. Uh, let me just say that um, the description of Amon there is quite short. Uh, we're told that he was evil. He was evil. Uh, and just like his father was evil, but there was a difference between the two of them in verse 23. Verse 23, the difference is that unlike his father Manasseh, he did not humble himself before the Lord. Amon increased his guilt. Now, he's a man who doesn't learn the lesson of history, does he? Uh, Amon should have learnt that from his father's exile that God does not tolerate sin. But even with the advantage of, of that knowledge, he chose evil and in his pride he did not humble himself now this is the choice which we all need to make uh, our sin i take it is not as great in its effect as manasseh's sin unless you've gone and offered up some someone as a child sacrifice recently but sin is a matter of the heart sin is it's when we prefer our own desires above the desires of God. Now, there was a lady who once who expressed this to me rather bluntly. Uh, she was caught in a sin and when I spoke with her about that, she said to me, I know what God wants and I know what I want and I'm going to do what I want. Now, I've got to tell you that in my experience, it is rare for anyone to express their rebellion against God so accurately, so clearly and so boldly as that. That is a very accurate expression of sin. Now, most of us are not going to articulate it that way, but it's actually what we all do, isn't it? We all live like that in countless ways. We prefer to live our way and not God's way. We follow our own desires. We even ignore God, even though we know that he is our creator, even though we know that he owns us. We choose our way and not his way. And it's for that reason that we all deserve judgment. It's for that reason that we all need forgiveness now why do you think when Solomon prayed to God 
after the dedication of the temple. And he asked God to forgive people. Why do you think he added that bit in that when your people in exile turn to this city and turn to this temple and pray, forgive them? What's that about? Why would they need to actually look at the temple or look towards the temple for forgiveness? Well, what did the temple symbolise? We said early on that the temple symbolises the presence of God. The temple also symbolises the sacrifice of God, the sacrifice for sin. It's both of those aspects, the presence of God and the sacrifice for sin, they're both fulfilled in Jesus, aren't they? Who, uh, as John the Baptist said, is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. God in the flesh, who died as a sacrifice for us by his death on the cross. And so, in that sense, forgiveness is found ultimately as we look to Jesus, as we turn to him, the very one who is the fulfilment of the temple. Now, someone might say, well, Manasseh, he obviously needed forgiveness. <laughs> I mean, look at his life. You know, child sacrifices, witchcraft, occultism, desecrating God's temple, blood flowing in the streets. Of course he needed forgiveness. Whereas me, I'm a pretty good person, really, compared to him. I'm okay. I don't need forgiveness. Now, the example of Manasseh doesn't show us the kind of person who needs forgiveness. The example of Manasseh shows us the extent to which God is willing to forgive. And if he can forgive Manasseh, then no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter the regrets that you have or should have, no matter who you've hurt, no matter how you've lived, no matter what ways you've ignored God, he will forgive you. If you humble yourself and turn to his son Jesus, who is, who was, is, is God the Son, the sacrifice for sin. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote that, uh, that it's not enough just to be sorry for your sin, that, uh, that godly sorrow actually leads to a change in life. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Well, guess what? Manasseh repented. Manasseh repented. We're not told how God arranged for his return to Jerusalem because that's not the important thing. The important thing is what he did when he got there. He dismantled the idolatry. He ripped down the altars and the shrines to false gods and he restored the worship of, of God in the temple and he commanded his people to now start worshipping God. <laughs> he repented. 
Manasseh finished his race well. You see, forgiveness and repentance, they go hand in hand, don't they? There's no forgiveness from God unless there's repentance. And indeed, the more we understand how much God has forgiven us, the more we're going to want to start living his way and loving God. Jesus once said that he who has been forgiven little loves little. The converse of that is that he who's been forgiven much loves much. Manasseh came to love God and he ended up finishing his life well. (laughs) This is a great story. Now, the result, though, was that the God's judgment of exile was now deferred for a couple of generations. But it would still happen. Because you can rip down altars, you can start up services in the temple, you can command your people to start worshipping God, but false religion is very attractive. Baal worship is very attractive. Because it, it, it gratifies the desires of the flesh. It enables you to, to live uh, gratifying those sensual desires and think that you're still religious. And false worship requires no repentance. You can pull down idols, you can start church services, but the hearts of the people did not change. As we'll see over the next couple of weeks uh, which inexorably leads to the Babylonian exile which is one of the most significant events uh, in biblical history. Now Corrie ten Boom she had not forgotten that concentration camp officer. Um, Her sister Betsy uh, did not survive the concentration camp. This was very, very significant for her. And as she held out, uh, as this concentration camp officer held out his hand to shake her hand, he spoke to her of the evil things that he had done in the prison. And he spoke to her that since then that he had turned to God and that he had found forgiveness in Christ. He wanted to know, would she forgive him as well? Now, shaking his hand, she said, and I quote, was the most difficult thing I have ever had to do. Can understand that, can't we? And in a sense, she didn't want to do it, but she knew that it was the right thing to do. She knew, she knew that that was what God would want her to do. So she said to God, God, I've got strength to lift up my hand. Can you do the rest, please? <laughs> and as she lifted up her hand, she said, she, God just took over. And she says, I have never felt the love of God so intensely 
And so I did at that moment. And she shook his hand, looked him in the eye, and said to him, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. It's a great expression of the incredible magnitude of the forgiveness of God to the worst of sinners. Uh, forgiveness, which I think is expressed so well in King Manasseh. Let's pray. Father, your forgiveness uh, knows no bounds for those who truly turn to Christ in humility and repentance. And we are so grateful for that. We pray that uh, each one of us would be humbled by you. We pray that we would be those who trust not in ourselves, but only in Christ the one who is truly God and truly the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we pray also, Father, that as we have experienced your forgiveness, that we would have changed lives, that we would put you first in all things, and may we too extend forgiveness towards those who grieve us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm.